You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, a weekly exploration of digital culture, media, technology, and memes, featuring critical conversations with experts at the forefront of our digital moment. My name is Josh Chapdelaine, and my co-host is Dr. Jamie Cohen. Last week, Jamie and I explored meme culture, specifically how memes inspire action. From the fun and quirky of this summer's gentle minions trend to the role memes play in communities that inspire tragic acts of terrorism. In our conversation last week, we briefly touched on two different aesthetics, vaporwave and fashwave. This week, we felt it would be valuable to unpack these terms with author, teacher, and our friend, Grafton Tanner. Jamie, Grafton, and I discuss vaporwave, its history, evolution, and how the characteristics of the aesthetic afford itself to be used by extremist movements. Additionally, we look at how nostalgic aesthetics and fandoms intertwine, how corporations grapple with nostalgic feelings of fandoms, and dive into what that means for cultural production and real-world action. Plus, we explore our collective illusions of control based on what Grafton calls the userverse. Before we begin, make sure to subscribe to us on your favorite podcast provider and leave a five-star review if you enjoy the show. You can find show notes of today's episode, which include links and resources for your reference, in the show summary or on digitalvoid.media. Here's this week's conversation with Grafton Tanner. Grafton, thanks so much for joining us once again. It's always a pleasure to have you. Totally. Thank you for having me back. Yeah. So last week, Jamie and I looked into meme culture and specifically started to interrogate and pull back some of the layers of vaporwave and the fashwave aesthetic. So we figured you would be the best person to continue the conversation about vaporwave with because you wrote a book on it. And Babbling Corpse is a phenomenal text that I recommend everybody pick up. But let's start with vaporwave itself. What is vaporwave and what is its aesthetic? That's a good question. And I think that, uh, you know, I wrote this book that's kind of an exploration of vaporwave. It came out about six years ago or so in 2016. And uh, at the time, I I didn't really want to like put down a definition of the genre because it, it's just some, you know, I got started as a music writer and it would always really frustrate me when people would like, try to boil, I mean, obviously like certain genres have certain aesthetics that kind of glom together in a specific way, but, um, I, you know, I just didn't feel the need to like try to draw these harsh boundaries around this, uh, concept that some people at the time were just thinking it was like a meme or just an internet phenomenon that had no, had no real artistic merit or something. So I didn't really do that. And in and, and the book, I more or less just kind of explored how, how it's made perhaps, and also maybe looking at the genre as somehow representative of of the larger trends happening at the time in the mid-2010s. Uh, why is it that in the internet age, if you will, 21st century, um, a few years after the birth of something like Facebook and the beginning of like the streaming economy, why is it that we have around like 2011, 2010, 2012, 2013, uh, these these uh, artists making music that just sounded like just like they took these very um, clear aesthetic elements of like 1980s music maybe and cherry pick them and put them together in a in a in a way that and it all kind of sounds the same and anyway and then they take or or they might take older songs and do something like slow them down and make them sound really strange and and uh, syrupy and. Why would they want to do that? You know, and, and at the same time, you can also ask, like in the early 2010s, why do we have um, bands where it's just a bunch of, you know, white dudes with acoustic guitars and one of them's like standing up, hitting a bass drum with a pedal. And it's all very like this sort of faux folksy go to the cabin kind of music. You know, what, what's going on with this? So that, that all, of you know, obviously some sort of reaction maybe to uh, increased digital presence in our lives or maybe it's something else. But so I wanted to kind of explore that in um, the book on Vaporwave called Babbling Corpse. And then as a person who's trained primarily in like media studies, I sort of wanted to then 
explore that a little bit more. And and then next thing you know, I ended up writing this this book on nostalgia, which was a more broad study of the emotion nostalgia in our time. And so yeah, yeah. And what <laughs> what is vaporwave? That's a good question. It's it's uh it is a music genre. Um, it's also kind of an aesthetic sensibility, if you will. I don't. That's probably it's not a very scientific term, but um, it's kind of a way of doing music and a way of doing like you know visual art that has something to do with taking a an older source material, usually something from like the late twentieth century, the nineteen eighties or nineteen nineties, and um, manipulating it in a in a way where it might be like a glitch or it's slowed down or it's choppy, like a old you know, CD or vinyl record that skips. And um, yeah, and it's meant to evoke a, a kind of mood of maybe maybe nostalgia, but also a, a really strange, surreal um, experience of like the past that comes back out of one's memory, but it comes back refracted and really strange. Um, and I, that to me, that's what the best vaporwave does, which I, I'm a purist. I think all the best vaporwave was made like 10 years ago, but that's me. Yes. Well, that's, I think, uh, when I try to define it, I find it's a heyday between what you mentioned, like 2010 and 2013. It was like a, kind of an inspiration for starting an internet studies program because I was like, this is the point in which we're using artifacts that a lot of these uh, younger users were seeing but not ever actually interacting with. And there was this um, feeling of reaching back toward the era in which there was like scan lines and like DOS screens and bright colors. And it was a lot of neon, almost like the neon that wasn't really present in the 80s. It was like present on the clothing and the styles, but like they merged it with the imagery of the 80s. So it was like low res almost. And then the sounds to me were like, like you say, it was like Muzak almost, like EDM Muzak. And a lot of the students I knew that knew how to code loved Vaporwave. Like I was like, and I, didn't, I just, I couldn't really understand it. I was like, all right, that's, that's neat. Why is it appealing now and continues to be appealing as a as that aesthetic when it's harkening back to the 80s and, and 90s? Like what specifically about that era and specific and maybe even ask you a little more pointed question. Why specifically is it often young men more likely to interact with this type of aesthetic? That's a good question. Uh, one of the things that since like 2015, 2016 has been a collapsing of the definitions between, I mean, of, uh, of vaporwave and then other sort of related internet-born electronic genres of music like something like synthwave or, or otherwise known as retrowave, um, which is, is sort of like a sister genre to vaporwave, but to me, like very different. And so, you know, if you, if you look up like vaporwave on TikTok or Instagram or something and try to try to like, or look at what the aesthetic is, a lot of times you'll get um, images that to me, and here I am doing the definition thing that I said I would never do, but it's like, you know, to me, it, it's, it falls more under something like synthwave, which I think the, the best like modern mainstream example of that would be something like, you know, the, the music of Dua Lipa or The Weeknd's last two records, the Dawn FM, which I think is really great, by the way. And then the one before that, which was um, After Hours, is that what it's called? So a lot of like... Um, arpeggiated bass, really bright synthesizers. They, they've all got, most of them have the same chord progression as uh, Boys of Summer by Don Henley. It's like almost every single one of them does that thing. And um, yeah, it's like that. And Vaporwave to me um, it is, uh, is a little less hi-fi and a little less high fidelity, a little, um, a little more experimental and strange. And, uh, but you know, if you look up anything about Vaporwave, a lot of times it gets confused with this thing called Synthwave, which I do think are, are very different. And so, uh, you know, I I don't know. Uh, I have not looked into much about like, for example, like, you know, incel culture and these genres, except to the extent, well, especially Vaporwave. But when it comes to something like Synthwave, um, it does tend to uh, have a popularity among certain kinds of reactionary, typically male people and uh that's a good question and to be honest i don't really know because um to me if i had to like speculate vaporwave is is a little less linear a little less um obvious it's stranger and um is uh not necessarily like something that would bubble up into the mainstream easily whereas synthwave which was also being made in like 2011 2012 on bandcamp by these artists who no one had ever heard of that stuff you know, a really like motoric kind of drum beat and the arpeggiated basses that that ended up showing up 
in the mid 2010s and has not gone away at all. I mean, you, it's, you know, like I, like I said, the weekend, the biggest artist in the world, you know, is like doing this kind of thing. But yeah. So then we continue to see the 80s being broadcast today based on your experience. Is that just because of the nostalgic lag of, of decades of, of three decades? Or is it the 80s holds some sort of particular hold over an audience? Well, it depends on which way we look at it, because I think you can look at it one way and say, well, from this angle, it's the fact that you've got a number of people who perhaps are nostalgic for that time period. It could be because that's, you know, maybe nostalgia comes in cycles. That's a popular theory. Um, It could be that, you know, there was something in 1980s culture and entertainment that is lacking today, a kind of um, letting go of one's inhibitions or whatever. And freedom, open, open highways, fast cars, very normative gender roles, things like this, especially like the mainstream Hollywood level. And so then we want it and then consume it. Or you could look at it from the other angle, which is that um, right now, you know, in a streaming economy, music economy, and when every, you know, also (laughs) streaming uh, in terms of visual art as well, it could be very difficult to make enough money that one used to make 30 and 40 years ago as like a, even like a mid-tier musician still signed to a label perhaps, or like a, or like a, a director that only needs like a few million dollars to, to make a movie as opposed to maybe a billion. Um, and so there's a certain like risk averse mentality in what we might call like the mainstream culture industry of the, of the 21st century. They've found out that it can be really lucrative to profit off the intellectual properties of you know, the 1980s and 1990s. So um, this is why we have so many reboots and, you know, we have, you know, older artists doing big reunion tours and things like that and, and or selling their back catalogs to um, investment firms that then put their music everywhere. And so it looks like, oh my gosh, when are we ever going to get out of the 1980s? It's just so much nostalgia. And actually, it, it might make some people nostalgic. And the idea is that maybe they keep wanting to consume Bruce Springsteen and Kate Bush and whatever, which I'm fans of both. But it also could be that it's just a really, for now, popular and lucrative way to make the money that they kind of used to make, but but maybe a bit more. Um, and that could be one reason why we have it like, you know, it's like, oh my gosh, another reboot, you know? Oh my right. gosh, another yeah. Star Wars installment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and whole universes. So this is where I think like corporation and nostalgia are starting to intertwine because like the Star Wars universe, the Marvel universe and the the lack of coherence of storylines, the more they kind of water down the content to instead of being just movies. Now it's an entire universe and side universes and side stories and so forth. It, it takes a lot of the origin of that. But the, the push then or the problem is that the invention of their universes originally had a certain look. And they have to be consistent with this look. But the look was based on the to- the contemporary time of the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. So now they have to adhere to a formerly effective style because it exists within that nostalgic cinematic universe. What I'm concerned about, and this is where I think I'm going to pivot a little bit here, about the look, the aesthetics, the way that we uh, encounter this type of thing. Does this type of interaction with universes and ownership and feelings that you belong belonging. Do you think that causes like communities on the internet? This isn't just about young men, but communities on the internet to feel like they own a style or they own an aesthetic. Like, do you feel like that there's maybe back to vaporwave, like that aesthetic of like the neon and everything? Do you feel like the creators of that believe they own it? Or do you think that's something that is kind of ephemeral and free on the web? Well, I think like the idea of like fandom and fan culture tends to be something that's pretty prioritized. And I think that that's to the extent that like a major production company or like, like someone like Disney would, would push that, like participate as a fan, you know, in the, in the creation of star Wars, because consuming it is a way to participate in it. And then we could talk about it on, on YouTube on, or our podcasts or whatever. And, and the, the thing is, is that it does happen, whether or not I think Disney intends in, in it or not. It's something that is, it can't just be consumed. And I think that the start of maybe create, this is why when people say like, well, these movies aren't really movies, there's something else. Well, I think that has something to do with the fact that when you've got someone like Disney that owns all these different properties 
And one of the ways to advertise within their universes is by hiding Easter eggs and hidden references and things like that. Then you are opening up the door for people to, you know, do like what we're doing on podcasts or go on, you know, have people have, you know, these whole entire YouTube channels devoted to being like, let me show you all the most insanely deeply hidden references in these movies that harken back to this Star Wars movie, this or that. And it ends up becoming something that feels like you've got a stake in it, almost like you like own, like you have stock in it or whatever. You are a part of this kind of this whole ecology of participation. And you could go dress up at it and do like cosplaying and, and, and whatnot. And I only enter into it as a person who's interested and tries to study it. But I've never really once been that person. But I can imagine that that is a really great way to have community. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like me and all my friends go watch Star Wars and then talk about it for days on end. Maybe. And I think, at, you know, at some point, yeah, it could feel like that you um, maybe are owed something from them, you know, especially if you've got some deep knowledge that this is going to happen, mainly because there's these references and I put them together in a way and it's almost like like putting together conspiracies, like we've got the the newspapers and the big lines drawn between them. So I can kind of predict that you're going to do this thing. And then when they don't, or they do it not the right way, because you've been talking about it endlessly. And so then you're like, well, here it is. Oh, it's not the same. Then I feel like you can get really let down. And I think that's, um, I think it's an issue that, that these big, you know, companies have like Disney with trying to do this, this persistent storytelling is what Kathleen Kennedy calls it. While also trying to not alienate everybody who's going to go out and watch it. So that's where I think this is a part where fandom and aesthetics intertwine. Like this is this is a really important part of what we've been looking at for the last year or so in the uh, it's horrible to call it like past pandemic because we're not post pandemic at all, you know, but in the in the place where we've reconnected into physical spaces, the idea that the fans have this unique power over creation is very interesting. What we've seen then in digital spaces, we've noticed that there's been a lifting of messaging. So messaging itself is going, it's abrasive. Uh, there could be reactionary movements that come from these storylines. The young people that feel like they have some sort of say over a plot because they could work in volume, you know, they could, they could just basically team up. What we've noticed is they've started speaking that way graphically, uh, meaning that they've literally started adopting aesthetics, whether that be like meme aesthetics or whether that be cultural aesthetics or like style aesthetics, whatever it is, they've, they've been able to figure out how to communicate en masse without saying words. They, they could actually almost, in a way, be collective as a style, vaporwave or, or a throwback aesthetic. I don't want to tie it directly to vaporwave because I think that's like mean because vaporwave is a very specific aesthetic. Uh, but we've noticed that that type of faux nostalgia has become a mood. Like I think you mentioned that before, a mood or a vibe. Uh, that has like become a place where people to participate on the internet, but it doesn't really doesn't really stand for anything. In other words, like it just seems so shallow. It seems like a reactionary movement that is solely designed to be reactionary. They're not corporations. They have no real say over this. Is this something that is fairly visible in terms of like people's misinterpretation of how capitalism works? <laughs> like, it, are they just disengaged from the way that corporations work? They have no real say except for reactionary stances. I mean, you know, the, the social scientists who study nostalgia would say, well, nostalgia is going to create community because if you're nostalgic about this thing, there's probably someone else out there who is also nostalgic about that thing. And then suddenly it's like, wow, now we have, you know, you can find this all over the Internet. You've got whole subreddits uh, dedicated to people who like modify their Game Boys you know what I mean, and, and want to like play like, you know, uh, hacks and ROMs of of older games and they get together and talk talk about it or people who. Um, and there's a lot of nostalgia on those on those forums. A lot of people being like, you know, or like Lego subreddits, people being like they talk about um, I'll, I'll probably have this terminology wrong, but I think they talk about it as like the their dark years or their dark ages, which is those years when they weren't playing with Lego. So they played with it when they were younger and then they went several years without it and then they revisit it in their, you know, 20s or 30s or older. And so then they refer to it as like their dark period or whatnot. You know, you have to double check me on this. But and uh, and suddenly you're on there with, you know, countless other people talking about new Lego that's released and and the old stuff and, and all of that. So as an emotion, it could really be good at finding other people who are also feeling that thing and talking about it. Now, what gets talked about is, is totally different. Like I, I use this sort of this like thought experiment in in the last book where I, I said, you know, 
Um, you can have some people who go to like a retro car show or something on like the weekends. They've got their old car. They meet up with others. They talk about old muscle cars or whatever. And they might talk about old muscle cars. Or they may talk about other things. They may even be like, yeah, boy, things are sure terrible now. They're better back then, right? And the next thing you know, it's the political talk. We've all been there. And suddenly it's like, you know, perhaps reactionary, as you say, you know what? It might not be so good, but that that would be my thing. And I, I think that if this is happening digitally, it's happening in online spaces. Um, certainly, you know, you've got corporations somewhere making um, money and at least, you know, producing data out of those exchanges. And, you know, especially in, in terms of like streaming platforms, that data is in some way used to figure out, well, what else might you want to watch to then stay within the platform. Um, and if it's a lot of like nostalgic content, then um, that's probably what's going to get platformed on the platform is more nostalgic content. So not connecting the following statement at all to people who hang out and talk about muscle cars, it would be a total misappropriation of where we're going. But our conversation last week was heavily centered around this aesthetic of fash wave. And to pivot to a very serious and reactionary and institutional issue that the United States is facing today. The tragic mass shootings are not lone wolf shooters, like early mainstream outlets understood them and sometimes continue to understand them, or at least communicate to the general public. Rather, these shootings are a product of a specific type of community one that heavily interacts and organizes online on message boards and private messaging platforms like Telegram. Increasingly, these communities are using memes with a vaporwave aesthetic. They're being called Fashwave. Can you explain what some of the characteristics are of vaporwave that afford itself to be co-opted by these heavily reactionary, heavily nostalgic fascist movements? Well, um... To me, with something like Fashwave, its closest aesthetic analog would be something like Synthwave, which uh, looks and sounds a little bit different than Vaporwave. I mean, you know, elements of Vaporwave to me, especially like visual elements, would be like the old like Roman busts or whatever, like the statues and um, sort of a lot of like purple color. And now those things show up in Fashwave, but um, the Fashwave which we're talking about a uh, uh, artistic and music genre, which is like heavily 80s synth kind of music paired with images of folks like Mussolini, Donald Trump, um, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Orban in uh, Hungary, authoritarian and quasi-authoritarian uh, figures. And um, some of them outright like you know, um, celebrating Nazis and neo-Nazis. And you get some of that in there. You'll get some of the Roman busts, the Greek art, the Greek statues. You'll get some of the purpley kind of color, you know. But in terms of the the music itself, you'll get a lot of, of this like arpeggiated bass and like old sounding drum machine and the um the the big almost like Jupiter synthesizers and and you know like very, very, like we described and earlier talking about synthwave and retrowave and sometimes there's vocals and the vocals are like very clear. They're very almost like um, Michael Bolton. They're just like big, big, you know, vocals. You just don't get that in vaporwave. The voice in vaporwave is, is um, sort of like ambiguous, androgynous. It's uh, slow. It's distant. It's repeating like a machine. Um, and in some ways vaporwave itself is, is a more machinic, unreal, unnatural ghosts in the machine kind of genre compared to synthwave, which is trying to hit at this sort of this like pleasure center that like, you know, like let's make the most pleasurable sounding pop music that you can feel. Here comes the synths. They're big and loud, you know? So th to me, Fashwave sounds more like synthwave than vaporwave. But again, because these things have kind of collapsed over time, at least when, when it's being talked about in the, in the press, uh, then, then you'll get, some elements of of like you know what maybe the source material that vaporwave sort of messes with that kind of comes through in in fashwave so there's venn diagrams of similarity here i was flipping through babbling corpse again yesterday in preparation for our conversation today and early on you write the following about the vaporwave sensibility so i was just curious if you could unpack this and how it might apply you write 
This desire to turn our fascinations and fantasies into more disquieting forms, to suggest that not all is perfectly well, to remind us that maybe we have not been liberated in the internet age. Uh, yeah, let's see here. Um, uh, to me, Vaporwave has always been eerie, spectral, strange. It's meant to uh, di- like disturb, maybe make one feel disquieted. Is that the word? You know, like a little like... Um, a little, a little, uh, like, like, yeah, like some, like something's not right. And to me, synthwave or retrowave is kind of the opposite. To me, synthwave sounds like the the rallying cry almost. Get everybody together and let's go storm the Capitol. It sounds like something that you. It's it's more juiced up and energized, and um, and that's why I think that you know when you think about something like synthwaves there's there's sort of a, a subgenre of it called outrun that's named after the i think what is it, the old video game and uh it, you know and it, it sounds like you know it's like the the arpeggiated synth is almost like the lines on the highway you know and and it's it's got a sense of speed and to me that that is i, th- I do think like the the if there's like an action tendency to this genre, it's very much like go and do. And to me, vaporwave is more like sit and feel eerie, <laughs> you know. And I do think that's why um, that could be a reason why it is more prime for for something like fastwave. And I, I do think that these genres aren't essentially anything. Like I, I don't think I think it's just ways that we read it. I mean, they certainly have their tendencies, but you know, it's not that like synthwave or retrowave is some like anti-progressive genre at its core. That's why it opens itself up to fascist readings and vaporwave is not. You know, I don't I don't think that's necessarily the case. But I do think that they have um certain feeling tendencies when we listen to them that might open themselves up for strange, maybe even reactionary uh applications. So what, what, what have we been studying? And I think your points are really well taken here because this is where I want to like ask a bit about what happens when this aesthetic becomes the mood or becomes the overall uh, factor in motivating these things or motivation or uh, intention, I guess is the best way to put it if you want to put it clinically. And one of the things that I've noticed about what you were explaining about merging concepts and, and using or misusing terminology, like you're, you're I, I believe you're absolutely right about the the sound that it's making. It's not vaporwave. And in fact, it's almost inappropriate to label fastwave vaporwave uh, derived. But because of reductionism of memetics and how memes are used on the internet and how people understand internet content or internet digital objects, they collapse a lot of these themes into things that look similar or feel similar. One of the collapses that we've noticed inside of fastwave is the collapse of merging vaporwaves, moods and aesthetics, which arguably are synthwave sounds, but but they're merged with Western chauvinism type of memes, which you mes- mentioned earlier. Western chauvinism is defined by that Roman aesthetic whitewashing of history, the misunderstanding that it was acid rain that made marble white, that the past was very colorful, but it turned to this aesthetic whiteness. And then the phraseology that Western chauvinism uses, which is like embrace tradition, reject modernity. That's their dog whistle for trad calf type of mood or uh, nuclear family or just straight up white supremacy, like hardcore white supremacy. And it's couched in this vaporwave aesthetic to be a meme and to be used on the internet in a way that is confusing to content moderators. Content moderators are unsure how to deal with white supremacist content if it looks and feels or even sounds like an aesthetic that was used in the past. So Knowing what you know about like nostalgia and, and vaporwave as, a, as an aesthetic, how does an aesthetic become a meme and what's its intention once that happens? How can we be more aware of that? When you say an aesthetic becoming a meme, it maybe t- tell me if this is also kind of what you're saying, like how an emotion like nostalgia can become memefied in order to do things in the real world. Yes, 100%. Yes. Yeah. So how does that work? Well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say this, something that, I'm kind of working on now that didn't really make it into the last book is this idea of like, is nostalgia's goal to end itself as an emotion? Cause I, I have to, we have to start there as to, to define it as a kind of emotion because that means it's like anger. It's like happiness, you know, and you know, things that human beings feel more or less in different places all over the world, although not obviously the same and, and with relatively similar, but not too similar action tendencies and certainly can be, taken up in their own discourses and used in a variety of ways. So 
when we ask, like, you know, does anger end itself in hatred? Well, no, not always, although sometimes it can, but that's not always the case. So is it the same thing with nostalgia? Does nostalgia want to end itself in getting back there or whatever, you know, and getting that thing back? And um, I don't know if that's necessarily true. And I, I would have to, I'm, this is something I'm kind of working through and reading about now. I do think, though, that like how anger can be sort of steered towards hate, I do think that nostalgia can be steered towards ending itself. And and that um, I do think that that if <laughs> if this is like the era of nostalgia or whatever, I think it is also the era in which there's like a coordinated effort to really stop the emotion altogether, which is a little strange and almost even counter uh, to some of the arguments I've made previously in in writings. Um, I think you could see it in terms of cinematic universes. How can anyone be nostalgic for Star Wars when there's a new Star Wars installment every few months or every you know year at least? You know, and the idea is that you know when I was younger and I saw the movies or like you know my example is always like Jurassic Park, big fan of the movie back you know the first one and and kind of the second one, but I always wanted more when I was really young. Like oh my gosh, can there be another one or whatever? Now there's like many many I, mean, I don't know how many there are now, but you know the idea is that you miss it, we'll give it to you. I think you could see this with Make America Great Again too. You want to go back there? Here's the person who's going to do it, you know, and back there can be who knows what and and what kind of strange, you know, misremembered. It may not even be the past. It might just have aesthetics from the past and it points to a time that really didn't exist or it existed pretty good for some people and pretty terribly for lots of others. But that's sort of the way that I am conceptualizing it now, which is um, which is also very, very similar to the ways that nostalgia was dealt with 200 years ago, which was that people shouldn't feel it because it makes you a bad soldier and a bad citizen and it'd be pathological. And so we're going to try to cure it out of you. Well, just like, you know, in anything in like sort of an age of, you know, an increased attention to therapeutic, you know, instead of like trying to beat the nostalgia out of you, instead, it's more like we're going to give you what you want so that you don't have to miss it anymore. And in, in the political realm, I think that's pretty scary and dangerous because obviously you could say like, hey, there were some things that maybe in the past were uh, better than they are now. You know, lots of things that were terrible, but maybe some things were better. You know, we weren't the emissions weren't as high or something like that, you know. But to say like, we've got to go back there, wherever that is, and I, I could completely make up the back there. It could be a complete and total fabrication, nuclear family, outright white supremacy, whatever. And we've got to get back there and, 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 and then stay there and lock it into place, you know, so that we don't have to, you know, feel the, the, the terror of, of, of missing it because things are so bad, you know, and things are bad, obviously. But yeah, I do think that that's, that's sort of what's been happening over the last few years. I don't know if this answers the question, but that's that's kind of the way that I think about it. That's exactly how I was thinking. It's just good to hear it. It's terrifying almost to hear it confirmed. Memes memes contain energy. One way or another, they contain an energy. And that's because in their definition, they have to. They won't work unless you have to share them. So some energy is in it. It might be a tiny bit of energy, but it could be a lot and could be kinetic energy. And that kinetic energy could result in something like the insurrection. You know, it's like there's enough memeing that could cause Pepe the Frog to run up the steps of the Capitol. In this trend, this is a trend, I'm going to place this under a trend because I do believe it has an ends in itself of uh, this fashion way of styling. It is pretty wild to see its growth and use. And what's, I think, even more interesting about the aesthetic as marketable. So I guess I'll, I'll before I end this part about Fashion Wave here, is that I think one of the things about in which way Fashion Wave ends is it becomes too marketable. And this is going to probably sound a little scary, but <laughs> ISIS is very good at Fashion Wave. Um, and so they've been using that aesthetic that was born of this merged aesthetic from the United States and Western chauvinism. And now it's being used as a recruiting tool for foreign terrorist organizations. And so it is oddly... Once it's commercialized, it does have a, a punctuation mark at the end of it. But it is frightening to see that there's a fake, the, the faux feeling you mentioned about like, let's go back there, can be lifted off its original intention into something that's more stylistic and fashionable than it is uh, usable, so to speak. Yeah, um, <clears throat> it's it's so strange to think about uh, ISIS, you know, using this in a, in, in a way to, you know, and again, I think if you think about the music of Fashwave, it's hard to to describe it, but it is a sound of like getting things done. It's a sound of of going and doing and hitting the road and and um, it sounds rallying, you know, and and intense and and with 
um, the right kind of production, maybe even a bit angry. And, and um, yeah, and that's not to say that like we're all humans are just buttons to be pushed by content or whatever, but um, certainly, you know, I mean, you listen to a nice slow ballad, you feel one way, you listen to, you know, the weekend, uh, what's, you know, blinding lights. You're like, let's play some football. And that's why all the sports teams use that song in their advertising. Big fan of the weekend, by the way, but like, that's, that's kind of the thing. I also think this is just out on a limb here, but, um, I don't think vaporwave has that end itself action tendency. Maybe that's what separates its kind of nostalgia from the nostalgia that might show up in something like Synthwave, which sounds like, like I said, something has to be done, which means doing it. And I think that what we saw on January 6th of, uh, of 2021 was a kind of way to end it once and for all to say like, you know what, we're, you know, we're going to install Donald Trump and we're going to keep him there. And that's it. You know, like almost a total intolerance to the idea of political division, you know, and, and to say like, you know, this side, this democracy, this back and forth, this person wins, that person wins, this side, that side, we're done with that. And we're going to keep it. That's sort of, I, I do think it was more than just put Donald Trump in office. I think it, it had a lot to do with keeping things locked and frozen in forever so that there doesn't have to be a loss anymore, which I know sounds a little scary. Maybe that's, maybe it's not that, but that's sort of the way I think about it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is scary. It, it's it's really scary. And it, to me, it, it sounds like you're saying synth waves are uppers and vapor wave is a downer, if we were to draw the parallel. <laughs> that's, yeah. yeah, maybe that's one way to put it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I want to pivot a little bit here because you wrote a phenomenal piece for real life titled Masters of the Universe. And it feels like we have two things happening in parallel culturally. We have the rise of the fast wave aesthetic, and we also have technocrats yearning for more control. One where users of gig economy apps like Grubhub, Uber, and Instacart feel like they are in control of their own lives, where labor is hidden from view and everything arrives in physical space because of the push of a button. You're calling this experience the userverse. What is a userverse? So I think of a userverse as kind of a an insular environment in which a single person has kind of like what feels like the the illusion of like total control over the environment, and that control often is uh, or the the feeling of it is kind of like allowed through certain kinds of technologies, especially home technologies, but also um, you know things like you know delivery apps and and the. Uh, you know, the Amazon workers at your door and the people who deliver groceries and whatnot. And, you know, sometimes it's good to think about this in like its most extreme form, which would be the person that just doesn't ever leave home. You know what I mean? That uh, allows to have everything delivered and um, has everything kind of like at the push of a button. But it even even not even at its most extreme, it does allow for a kind of exploitation of others, but but not just exploitation, but also like in a rendering invisible of, of others and most especially the gig workers who do the delivering to your door. And and then certainly like on a on like a larger, more like macro scale, like the the kinds of uh, exploitation, even of the environment that uh, has to happen for these technologies that we have in our home to function as well. So that's that's kind of the way that I think about it. And, and uh, it opens itself up to possibilities of abuse. I mean, kind of like this idea sort of builds off work done by uh, like someone like Astra Taylor, who talked about, you know, photomation, fake automation, the idea that like, you know, it feels like that the technologies are automated and it's robots doing the work, but it's really always a person somewhere behind the screen doing the work. So I wanted to kind of give a term to the the space that's created when when these things, when this fake automation is happening and, and what sorts of experiences people might have, you know, especially experiences of like the illusion of control that people might have. Right. There's an illusion of control when you get home from work or you finish work after working remotely all day and you open Uber Eats and you see a $15 coupon and you press order and you take a shower and 20 minutes later it's at your door. You describe this as control as convenience. How would that apply to something like this? Well, it's sort of, uh, well, the convenient part is that it means you don't have to go do anything, <laughs> you know. 
and uh, and you could just kind of stay and have have stuff delivered to you. And and this isn't like um oh we're bad people, you know, human beings. They just want to be catered to or whatnot. And and I have some backwards essentialist view of of people. If I have a backwards view of anything, it's going to be the tech companies and the 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 apps themselves that sort of promise this very seamless detached, distant experience of being catered to, for example. Um, and that um, it could feel like that just with a few swipes and a few clicks of a button that you have, I mean, like you literally do have all of this control over what people are doing. They are driving to your house and dropping things off and having to run back into the Amazon truck because they're on a clock, you know? And so to some extent, it's like the, the illusion of control in the sense that there's like mastery over the way things are done in the world, but also actually a very real control in the sense that these people are really being exploited. They're doing what, you know, is called like the ghost work or whatever that maybe um, allows us to have certain, certain affordances and conveniences. Right. And I just love when you write that escape and efficiency are two technocratic ideals that are viewed as synonymous in this user-verse. How are those synonymous? How is an escape from the collective responsibilities of community and efficiency, meaning productivity, both on an individual as well as a uh, more macro scale, viewed as synonymous? Yeah, so, you know, the escape, like, inward. It's like, I don't have to go outside anymore and be a part of, like, public space, which, you know, is oftentimes framed as being very dangerous, which we have a lot of problems happening out in the public world of, you know, the, of our country, for example. But it's, it's very much like, take, for example, you know, if you um, spend a lot of your day watching, you know, news, not just local news, but, but certainly like CNN, Fox News or whatever, a lot of the framing on, on those, uh, on those shows is, is all about how dangerous the world is and how, you know, there's things that you've got to do to like, protect yourself because nobody's going to protect you, the state, nobody's going to help you out. You've got to be the one to make sure you don't get scammed at the gas pump or, or shot and killed out in public or whatnot. And enough of that, that viewing can really start to make one feel like I don't want to leave the house anymore. You know, the world itself is inherently a dangerous divisive place. And again, I think this is something that someone like Donald Trump did to mobilize, um, his right wing base. You know, it is a kind of right wing mobilization trope. Like, you know, Wendy Brown would call it. And so, uh, yeah, it, it, it means that if the outside world is frightening and anxiety inducing in, in a way that seems like you need to escape inward, then yeah, then these um, services, which are often framed as like, you know, never leave home again, you know, you know, you never have to go do anything. They seem to be a real gift. Um, but at the same time, yeah, it's like they save you time because you're always working. You know, there's no there's no longer any line between work and life. You're always on the clock, you know, and and um, you have people who are obviously super overworked and they don't want to go to the grocery store. They don't want to do these things. And so then we got, wow, I could just have this stuff delivered. How nice is that? But of course, they just are completely bound up with these reactionary politics and 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 logics of exploitation that are that are obviously extremely dangerous and destructive. So this is perpetuating disenfranchisement from both ends of the spectrum, from the worker side, because it is disenfranchising them from community, from the solidarity of co-workers, from being able to have union representation or solid benefits, because most of them are 1099 independent contractors, as well as those in the userverse who are inherently trying to avoid the collective responsibility of community or maybe if not necessarily avoiding it, just trying to be more efficient or to escape insularly to say, I'm done with the day, as you said, and I want my groceries delivered and it, I don't need to go out into my local community. Yeah. I mean, that, that might be, that, that is a, that would be like maybe the most positive outlook on it. And, and, and I, I said this too, cause I'm like, it's not necessarily that you know, even though this does feel it is like a like a kind of sadism as a service thing, it doesn't mean that everybody's super sadistic. I can't wait to make this person work for me. But there is a kind of pleasure in that that seems really appealing to have to to be kind of waited on the the dumb waiter. Somebody down there is working, but I don't I don't see it because all I see is the what looks like the robot doing the work for me. And this is this gets talked about a lot. Like we were talking about content moderation earlier. Certainly this is this is a, a huge issue with the idea of like the algorithm, something that is 
very much mystifies the process where like a lot of a lot of what gets um you know taken off platforms like Facebook are done so by people who have to view this stuff and are like really underpaid and and um behind the screen by um you know Sarah Roberts is like the book on this and is really important to read but something else I was going to say but I forgot but yeah that's yeah this is when I one of the things I liked especially liked in this in this essay was about how the userverse competes with the metaverse and the well the ideas of the metaverse and the goggle based production that's in there one is you acknowledge the the uh, labor that's in virtual reality for every digital object you interact with you interact with labor somewhere and and the same is with memes there's always labor there's invisible labor that has occurred when you when you participate in meme culture somebody had to create that through something what i found interesting the most about the user verse is we are already in the metaverse in that sense because we already have the ability to put on our Nintendo Power Glove, wave our hand, and an uh, NPC comes to our door with food. And that's a mental dehumanization, I think, that is part of the metaverse, but I don't think should be applied to our living verse, so to speak. So it is, you are, you are addressing something that I think metastasizes in a very bad direction if we get used to this or at least normalize the user verse that we currently exist in before the someday dystopian view of the metaverse. How do we start considering the, the people or labor that is beyond the screen in both the digital space and our user verse space? Well, I think it's important to start by acknowledging that when I think about the user verse, I think of it as kind of a virtual reality without headsets or without, it could very much be um, a virtual reality that doesn't feel technological, but that is. And so to some extent, when you when I placed the user verse in a kind of history, I thought about it as being part of a history of like interior private space and certainly like may, maybe even a uh, a part of the history of like of suburbanization and the idea that the the suburban community is, is heavily manufactured and, and heavily uh, maintained. And there is a kind of like separation, gentrification, if you will, separation from the areas of the, of the city or the community or whatever that maybe one feels like they need to get away from because it's dangerous or it's seedy or what have you. Um, and so I see the universe as being kind of like this experience of having everything catered to you. Um, without ever having to like do what we so often see in virtual reality narratives, which is a person like uploading to some machine, like whether that's, you know, like the matrix and something goes in the back of your head or it's ready player one. And I put on the goggles, like we're already kind of living in that. We don't need the thing in the back of the head or the goggles. You're already kind of in it. It's itself. It's that's kind of what it is. Um, when I, when I think about the user verse that, that's the experience and the technology, excuse me, the technology that we have maybe isn't the ability to go into like San Junipero to cite the Black Mirror episode, but maybe is like a phone and an app and and an Alexa that we talk to or whatever. That is itself sort of like catered by by machines in a way that virtual reality narratives kind of play up to, but in a different way. Uh, in a way that that you know hasn't happened yet, maybe won't ever happen. But it doesn't mean that we're waiting for VR to show up. You kind of are already in a VR when you're in a userverse, right? So to, to tie both parts together, the the fast wave aesthetic plus its embedded energy to the userverse energy, which is almost in and of itself the sit back and make do type of energy. Um, how do we start looking beyond that? Like, how do we start understanding it beyond these aesthetic-based, we could we could label something as this is an aesthetic or this is a meme or this is us exploiting in this way. How do we how do we go beyond? What's our next step to start understanding how these things work for us to start having better conversations about it than turn them into marketable ideas that every time I'm sure we're giving ideas to marketers being like, well, how do we not say these words? How do we how do we make sure that they're not thinking about the person? Like, how do we start going beyond that? That's a good question. And yeah, you're right. I mean, there every time a like a media critic tries to draw attention to a media problem, it then gets taken up as like a potential by Silicon right. Valley or something. And you're like, wait a minute, have you not done the reading? Have you not read seen the episode? You know? Uh well, the idea of like like connecting this idea of of uh, the the reactionary memer who is on their phone or on their computer and they're 
posting and sharing these sort of these reactionary pieces of content maybe reside in their own kind of user verses where everything is sort of, you know, catered to them and they feel comfy and safe surrounded by the technological appliances and, uh, and, and doing warfare behind the screen. You know, I, I think th- there has to be an acknowledgement that these aesthetics are bound with their own political implications. And that is really hard to do when, when you've got tech companies that are always framing their inventions and devices and apps and technologies as being something that exists almost outside the human realm as being created and then caters to the human as this sort of like, you know, robotic caretaker or something, the smart house. And, and this is, a, here's the thing is you've got like decades <laughs> going back to the Jetsons even and before of, um, of, of popular culture that, you know, frames the technological as being something extra human, you know, unhuman outside of human that um, assists and and takes care of and and whatever. And um, although you have some who might say, well, that would be the goal and then nobody has to work anymore. So the robots do it for you. Um, But it just doesn't work like that because humans are in the world. They're of the world. They create, they, like I'm not one, we create the world and uh, create these devices. And there has to be some kind of human maintenance, you know, and any idea that like an artificial intelligence or, you know, a technology is going to become itself sentient completely and out of outside human possibility, you know, it, it, it's certainly the not necessarily the case. And, and obviously a, uh, a discourse that is popular actually among many of these white supremacist uh, people um, as being able to create sort of like the pure intelligence or whatever that that can then you know, make decisions based on, you know, the, the white people that created it or whatnot. And so therefore we have to like, you know, worship the, uh, the idea of the artificial intelligence to come or else once it does arrive, then we're all going to be, you know, doomed and destroyed by it or whatnot. There's a thought experiment about this, but yeah. So, uh, the, the technological and the aesthetic are political. It's just really hard because if you turn on your TV, that is not the narrative. It's all about like, how can we build these machines that are then going to take care of us like in our old age or something? It doesn't work like that. It doesn't. And we need to begin to move forward into a more human-centered tech future or else we are going to forever be involuntarily subservient to these devices. So Grafton, this was such a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to discuss a lot of really heavy concepts and topics. Uh, It's always a pleasure uh, chatting with you. Well, thank you so much. I, I so appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into the Digital Void podcast. You can find out more about Digital Void and all of our projects on our website at digitalvoid.media. Next week, we're taking a deep dive into artificial intelligence chatbots with AI games designer Reed Berkowitz. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you soon. And so we might say this is an experience of the void.